You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. When you go to get blood drawn at the Red Cross, you are actually secretly having mind-controlling microchips implanted into your bloodstream that can be detected with a stud finder. Did you know that a scuba diver can be sucked up by a firefighting helicopter and dumped on a forest fire? If a bullet is shot through the tank for the fuel tank of a car, it will explode. A car door can always protect you from bullets in a shootout. A simple tissue box stored in the backboard of a car can move with sufficient force to kill a person during a crash. It is possible to survive a free-falling elevator by jumping out, jumping out at the last minute, moments before it hits the ground. If you sneeze with your eyes open, your eyes will fly out from the full force. These are all examples of things that people believe. Recite them and tell them to others and can be held to so strongly that they're likely not to change their mind how much they're told, friend, these are myths. These are not true. Some perhaps newly heard even this morning and some perhaps held and believed for years. All of them proven wrong. A myth, by definition, is a widely held belief that's false. It's not accurate. It's not true. But the fact that myths are so widely held and are taught to us by even people that we trust, like our moms and dads, our older brothers and sisters, our friends, our coworkers, who say it with such confidence, such assurance that it just must be true. And yet, they're not. Let's just test this. Listen, if you will, to the following statements, and let's see how well you do. Chewing gum stays in your stomach for five to seven years. Wait an hour after eating before you go swimming to prevent cramping. We only use 10% of our brain. Sitting too close to the TV will make you go blind. If you go outside with wet hair on a cold day, you'll catch a cold. You lose most of your heat through your head. Cracking your knuckles will cause arthritis. Now, here's the thing. Contrary, perhaps, to some of you are thinking, none of these things are actually true. I know right now some of you are like, but Eric, I think one of those actually is true. You're welcome to come up and argue with me afterwards if you'd like, though I'd prefer to have a different conversation, maybe about Galatians instead. It might be the only thing, unfortunately, that you remember from this morning. But it speaks to how strongly commonly held beliefs can be held, how difficult it can be to change them. I wonder what that's like when it comes to what we believe about God and his word. It's one thing to believe myths about cracking your knuckles or chewing gum. It's a whole other thing to believe a myth about God, his son, or how to be reconciled to him. These myths have damning consequences on 
people's lives. And yet, since almost the very beginning of time, these lies have been introduced to God's people. Strongly held beliefs, deceptively offered Lies that package in the form of seemingly so strong, so sure that they just must be true, and yet they are not. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And he lied. Death, because of their disobedience, was issued. The Bible has great concerns about this problem of lies, false prophets, false teachers. God takes very seriously this topic throughout the scripture and throughout history. Through the servant Moses, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is what is to be put to death. Far more than just a smack on the hand. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24, speaking of the end times, he says, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul tells the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And we could just sit here all morning long and just read you scripture after scripture after scripture throughout history, throughout God's revelation of how much this is a problem. Here's what I want you to learn today. False teaching is still common today and you need to know how to recognize it and be responsible for rejecting it. Otherwise, the consequences will be tragic for countless people. There it is. That's what I want you to walk away with. Now, if you're just now joining us, let me have all of you, regardless of whether it's your first time, you've been a member for a number of years, turn your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Galatians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, listen along. We've got some things on the screen you can kind of get sneak peeks. We do have Bibles for you for free at the Welcome Center. You can just go back there after the service and say, hey, I hear the Bible. I'd love to have one for free. It's an accurate and readable translation for you, the English Standard Version. Know that that's one of our gifts to you. We'd be glad for you to have that. But for those who do have a copy of God's Word, perhaps an app on your phone or a tablet or actually a printed Bible marked up to be read, Galatians is where we have been for the last number of months. And we've come now to what I'm sort of calling the Galatians after party. If you think about going to a, an event, some major celebration, there's that thing you go to afterwards. Well, we have finished the entire book of Galatians, even last week or rather the week before, uh, it's kind of summarizing the entire book of Galatians in a single sermon. But now we come to three features in the book of Galatians that I want to return back to. And I want to return back to them because I think Galatians gives us a great point of reference to see it's not unique to Galatians, but common throughout the scripture. 
Today we're talking about false teaching. Next week we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The week after that we're going to talk about the church. And what we need to see is the significance of false teaching and its consequence. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, after a brief greeting, verses 1 through 5, come stronger in this letter than any other writing in the New Testament. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. It's like saying, let him be judged, let him be damned. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What we're going to see this morning, starting in Galatians and really looking at other examples throughout Scripture, is the significance of what Paul says here, and that is the reality of false teaching. And I say this because I recognize that false teaching can feel like some old way of thinking. So for example, today, if I talk to you about idols, you might in your mind think, well, outside of a few religions of which I've heard of or maybe seen, I can assure you I don't struggle with this because I do not have any like wooden carven images on the mantle over my doorway or in my room, and so I have no idols in my life. And yet we begin to realize from the teaching of Scripture, actually idolatry is a lot more than just simply objects we give our attention to, but we've praised them. It's instead the desires and the affections we make greater than God. Well, similarly, we can think false teaching is something that's like, well, it comes at us in some stated cult-like representation, and yet, actually, it's not simply a historic problem, it's a present-day reality. So number one, let's define false teaching. False teaching is false doctrine, that's what the word doctrine means, is teaching, false doctrine, that is, that is which opposes some fundamental truth or that which is necessary for salvation. So, for example, false doctrine is either directly going at the gospel and redoing it, the gospel which is faith alone and Christ alone because of his grace alone is how man is forgiven of his sins and saved, rescued from the wrath of God, False doctrine either attaches, attacks that directly or indirectly by starting to undermine it. So, for example, another way that false doctrine can find its way in the church is to kind of redefine God. Domesticate God. Remove attributes of God. You know, the kind of God that we would wish him to be, or so we think. God is loving. He's not just. God is gracious. He's not wrathful. Hell is some type of misinterpretation from a bygone era, but we now know better. We've read the original language. This has been a common way of thinking throughout 2,000 years of false teaching and still present today. A false teaching versus the false teacher. The false teacher is someone who contradicts Jesus or misrepresents what Jesus taught. The ground zero for orthodox, for sound, for historically valid, for biblically accurate 
teaching is the teachings of Christ. This is why Jesus says in the Great Commission, what? Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey all that I commanded. Now, it's important, if I can, at the very outset, to differentiate the difference between wrong teaching versus false teaching. There are errors and there are heresies. So in, in, the, in the kind of fraternal nature of the body of Christ within Christianity, we can disagree over whether or not our children, our infants, should be baptized or not. If you're from a Presbyterian background, a Methodist background, a Lutheran background, you would have been taught based upon the theology of the explanation that they would represent from Scripture that babies should be baptized in keeping with what in the Old Testament was circumcision and the New Testament would be represented as baptism. Baptists and others like Baptists would say, no, no, we would not believe that that's true. We actually believe what's true is that every example we see from Scripture is a person is baptized only after and upon having put their faith in Christ. A young infant child has not yet done that. Those are differences within Christianity, errors of being one is right and one is wrong. Those are not heresies. Heresy, on the other hand, is far more significant. It strikes at the very heart of the gospel and of truth. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians. He is saying it's so significant, he doesn't care who's saying it. Paul does not want heresy to get a pass based on the personality presenting it. And often today, we're so distracted by the persuasiveness of the speaker, the appearance of the speaker, the seemingly popularity of the speaker, we think, well, that must be from God, because if that wasn't from God, God wouldn't have allowed that thing to be as popular as it is. And yet, that's not all we see in Scripture. When we think about defining false teaching, here's what I want you to think of it. I want you to think about these categories. Think of the content, what's being said. Think of the origin. Does it come from God? The authority, is it coming from his word, the Bible? The consistency, is this a twisting of one Scripture to neglect of all Scripture that says that the twisting is wrong? False teachers love to take a part of the Bible and twist it and plug their ears and close their eyes to other parts of the Bible who proves that their teaching there is wrong. It's also the value of what it produces. Does it build up community or does it destroy community? Does it encourage unity or does it bring disunity? And a sense of righteousness, the, the, the pure ones, the right ones. A true doctrine originates with God. It comes from the Bible. It agrees with the whole of Scripture. Because such doctrine is good and sound, it is healthy and profitable for us. And we are responsible to hold on to it. And yet in the book of Galatians, that particular false teaching was adding to faith to have confidence that you were accepted by God. The false teachers were not taking away faith they were saying, no, no, good for you. You need to add to it with your good works. And by doing that, they were shrinking back from the cross. They were saying the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient. This takes us to the dangers of false teaching. 
the dangers of false teaching. Now, what's interesting, if you think about this, how many of you, just by show of hands, we'll be in the support recovery group together, how many show of hands have ever had food poisoning? Food poisoning, yeah. Oh, man, we're, we've, we can share together in those tragic moments. Food poisoning is one of these things that doesn't introduce itself as warning, you're about to be overwhelmingly sick. No, food poisoning is such a way in which it presents itself as food that you have normally eaten before. Uh, you know, you just are a drive through it, fill in the blank. I will not throw a place under the bus like that. Or perhaps a food that you prepared at home or a friend's house that you went to. And then it hits you to the point where you pray for Jesus' return. <laughs> Lord, come quickly. And you just, you just seriously question your very existence. But what's so interesting about food poisoning is, is it's the problem is not the food. The problem is the additional presence of the bacteria in that food that caused that much destruction that you did not expect. It attached itself to good food. That's often what false teaching is like. It kind of masks itself with either good teaching or the good words to reference and disguise itself as being good teaching. Words like faith, Jesus, love. And that's what's happening, for example, in the book of Colossians. The Colossians, a church that Paul did not himself plant, but he hears later about them and he writes to them, the Colossians are being drawn away into all kinds of additional teachings like the Galatians. But the additional teachings were basically saying this, listen, keep your Jesus. You should have faith in Jesus, but you're missing out by not observing these things or doing these things or not doing these things. It kept adding to the work of Christ. Well, in the dangers of false teaching, this is what ends up happening is it ends up creating more problems than could possibly be imagined. Let me give you four examples of the dangers of false teaching. Number one, distortion. Number two, division. Number three, despair. And number four, damnation. Number one, distortion. The danger of false teaching, number one, is distortion is it starts to twist God's word. It's as if God is somehow struggling to communicate clearly, but thankfully, this person who has not lived in church history until right now has provided the way. That sort of strike you as surprising, if not audaciously proud? 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of people having their Bibles, 2,000 years of teaching and studying, and yet they've got it all wrong, but this person on the scene provides clarity. They distort God's word for the promotion of themselves. Look at Galatians. He says in Galatians chapter 5, Verse 7, you are running well. Talking about how they began their Christian life. Galatians 5, verse 7, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Who's talking about just a little bit there? Leavens the whole lump that ruins it. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? 
In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you, who unsettle you, would emasculate themselves. We looked at this text a number of weeks back, but just to remind you to put it fresh in front of you or to introduce it to others of you, the context here is that the teachers at that time who came into the church after Paul had left said, listen, keep your Jesus, but add circumcision. Keep your faith in the resurrected Savior, but add these religious works. And if you pair those together, you can have confidence. You are accepted as a child of Abraham. You are good with God. And Paul says, no, no, that's a deception of God's word. It distorts it. In fact, he gets so upset, he's like, you know what? I wish they would just castrate themselves. They're so big on that. Why don't they go and do that themselves? The second danger of false teaching is division. You think about the significance of Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's on the eve of his arrest. He's praying for his disciples, both the ones present and the ones who would come after them and the generations to follow. And he says in his prayer, Lord, may they be one as you and I, Father, are one. And then he goes on and says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What should be the rallying cry of a church together? It should not be our political ideology. It should not be our economic policies. It should not be our ethnic and economic markers. It should be the centrality of the crucified, resurrected Savior. That there is not division around the gospel. And we see that functionally true. Another danger of false teaching is despair. People end up despairing because false teaching never actually delivers on what it promises. It promises hope, and yet it gives uncertainty. It promises peace, and yet it gives unrest because you're never quite sure if you're good enough, if you've done enough, if you've believed enough. Lastly, it ends up providing damnation. Damnation, to believe in another gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1, is to not believe in any, other, any gospel. There is no other gospel. The significance of this is gigantic. He wants them to recognize the consequence of what this means ultimately. It's not just getting it wrong, we'll sort it out at the end. It's getting it wrong and for an eternity paying the consequence of this. So the dangers of false teaching are huge. Third, how do we identify false teaching? How do we identify it? Well, as I said to you in Galatians chapter 5, you can see how it gets identified because of what it produces, but also by what it instructs. T.D. Jake says that God eternally exists in three manifestations, not three persons. A doctrine that was labeled heresy in the 300s called modalism at the Council of Orange. And yet, it's super common today, still held by popular teachers, even in the city of Miami and beyond. Greg Boyd says God knows some aspects of the future, but that other future events are outside of his knowledge, as if God is like somehow playing catch-up. Man, I'm so sorry, guys, about the hurricane. I didn't see that one happening. Don't worry, I'm going to try to help make things right now that they've been made wrong. What an impotent God that is. Thankfully, not the God of the creation of Scripture, the God of the revelation of His Word. Creflo Dollar says, because we are created in the image of God, we are all little gods. Almost like a prosperity gospel of Mormonism. 
Speaking of Mormonism, Mormonism says God revealed new scripture to Joseph Smith that supersedes the Bible. Convenient, since nobody saw it except Joseph Smith. You can't read it for yourself. You can't look at the original golden tablets. You're going to take his word for it, and nobody else saw it. That's awfully convenient. This is why the Apostle John tells us to test the spirits, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to test everything, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. So let me give you some examples of false teaching. Number one, one example is to say there are many paths to God. You know that kind of coexist bumper sticker? Hey, preacher boy, dial it back, relax. You seem a little uptight. You should be glad with these other religions. They're doing good work. They're nice people. And honestly, who are we to judge? And can't we just say God knows that they mean well? This is a common lie. This philosophy has become very popular under the guise of tolerance. This false doctrine claims that since God is love, he will accept any religious effort as long as the practitioner is sincere, as if sincerity is the ultimate test. Such relativism of religion flies in the face of the entire Bible and effectively eliminates any need for the Son of God to take on flesh and to be crucified. Because that's exactly what you're essentially saying is, Jesus, you do not need to die to save sinners, especially since there's other ways. And yet, what does Jesus say himself? In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, Jesus, that sounds rather exclusive to me. Another example of false teaching is the denial of Jesus' attributes or actions. A doctrine that denies the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, his sinless nature, his actual physical death, the crucifixion, his literal physical resurrection, ro rising from the grave. To undermine those doctrines is to present another Christ in the one the scripture teaches. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, friends, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, pack it up and go home. Don't come here on a Sunday morning. You're wasting your time. Sleep in. Go to the beach. Go get pancakes. Do something but being here because if Jesus is still in the grave, literally, then all our faith is in vain. But if he rose from the grave, literally, it's a game changer because he's done what no one else in history has ever done. The challenge and tragedies, even today, many mainline denominations have begun to slide into this sort, of this sort of apostasy by declaring either no longer hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible or a literal deity of Christ. They start to change it. Jesus becomes more like an ethical role model, not actually a substitutionary lamb of God. Another example is faith plus works equals salvation. This is the problem in Galatians, but it's not unique to Galatians. It's in Colossians. It's throughout the teaching of Scripture as false teaching comes in and it gets regularly addressed. This is the teaching that adds religious works to Christ's finished work on the cross. You're saved as long as you've been baptized. That's called baptismal regeneration. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you're putting your hope in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, you're putting your hope in something other than Jesus Christ. Baptism is certainly commanded from Scripture as an act of obedience after you've been saved. 
but it's not required to be forgiven of your sins. I mean, what would you do with the thief on the cross? Uh-oh, what are we going to do there? I've actually heard, and I'm not making this up, and you're right to think, you've got to be making that up. I promise I'm not making this up. When challenging people who believe you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven, a person, when asked the question, what do you do about the thief on the cross? Who Jesus says to him after believing, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. A person actually said, Jesus spit on him since there was no water present. To which I would say, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. And you say, well, that seems, that's not very nice. Oh, well, the word idiot means without knowledge. Like, you clearly have, like, lost your mind. You're trying to make the Bible say something the Bible does not say. challenges to associate any kind of religious ritual as something that would secure your future with God. This is exactly what happened with circumcision in Galatians. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we're saved by grace of God through faith, and even that itself is a gift. Galatians chapter 1, the text we just read a few minutes ago, verses 6 through 9, pronounces a curse on anyone who changes the good news of salvation by grace alone. Another one is hell does not exist. I mean, hell is kind of falling on hard times, right? Hell is like the doctrine you kind of apologize for. Like, oh, I'm really sorry I have to tell you this. I'd prefer not to. Friends, let me just tell you right now, if you're ever tempted to compromise in hell, you're basically up trying to apologize for God being holy. Hell exists as a demonstration of God's righteous indignation at sin and its righteous offense against this holy character that rightly deserves not a temporary but an eternity of consequence. The problem is not that you think hell exists. The problem is that you think sin is that small that hell should not exist and God somehow should apologize for it. Now, I recognize hell is uncomfortable. Hell is not, you know, typically how you lead your friendships and conversations. But hell is clearly and repeatedly taught by Jesus himself, arguably more than any other doctrine at almost. Jesus talks about hell. And yet the common representation today is that it does not exist. This place of eternal torment. A denial of hell directly contradicts Jesus' own words in Matthew 10 and Matthew 25. Another one is grace permits you to live as you desire. You know that teaching that says pretty much if you believe, you're fine. It can be a license to sin. This idea, as long as you, at one point in your life, you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you raised a hand, you filled out a card, I don't know, you did something. Sunday school, church, parents, bedroom, bedside, whenever, at some service, at some rally, at some church service, as long as you can point to some point in the past that you have that, don't let anybody take that from you, you're good with God. And I mean to say, uh, you might not be. You're not, might not be. Why would I say that? Am I underdoing the whole idea of works? No, it's because of the belief that Someone actually never truly understood the gospel and responded biblically to it. Repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Christ. They're not a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Another example of false teaching is believe it so you can claim it. This is called fortune cookie Christianity. Fortune cookie Christianity is the kind of Christianity like, did you get that from the Bible or did you get that from the Chinese restaurant? Because that just sounds pretty remarkable. And I'm doubting that that's actually true. 
Oh, don't take my word for it. Let me give you a quote of one of the most popular religious books sold in America. Quote, we have to conceive it on the inside before we can ever, we're ever going to receive it on the outside. If you don't think you can have something good, then you, can, then you never will. The barrier is in your mind. Your own wrong thinking can keep you from God's best. To experience God's immeasurable favor, you must rid yourself of the small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessings. Start anticipating promotion and supernatural increase. You must conceive it in your heart before you can receive it. In other words, you must make increase in your own thinking. Then God will bring things to pass. And by the millions people buy that book, it's the genie in the bottle of Christianity. God is like in this bottle of your negative thinking. And if you could just take that valve off by being positive and hopeful and kind of name it and claim it, God will be like, finally, you've let me out. I can now bless you. The only problem is that's completely inconsistent with what the Bible actually says. Like, what about Paul? Like, Paul, listen, this whole like throwing the flesh thing, you just don't believe it. This whole, like, you know, persecution and sufferings and your back being beaten and you being stoned, it's because you've not sort of named it. You're sure, the power of positive thinking, Paul, you need to kind of step it up. Job, what is your problem, Job? Job, you're such a negative Nancy. You've got to actually kind of claim it, claim the promises of God. Friends, listen to me. This appeals to your and my flesh every day of the week. I want a God who only rewards me and never disciplines me, only blesses me and never teaches me, only affirms me and never corrects me. I want a God of my own creation. And it fills, quote unquote, churches by the hundreds of thousands and sells millions of books. And it's not found in the Bible and it's false teaching. Satan has been confusing and perverting the word of God since the Garden of Eden. False teachers, the servants of Satan, try to appear as servants of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 11. They'll be known by their fruits. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Fourth, fight back against false teaching. Fight back against false teaching. Now, if you've come to my house, you know this. If you've not come over, you're invited. Probably not this afternoon, but you're invited. Uh, my father-in-law and I, a couple years back, put a gravel walkway from my kind of back driveway to the side door of my house so people wouldn't kind of come to my office and kind of walk through the dirt and the kind of mulch bed or whatever and bring all that in the house. I thought, okay, we'll put down a, a, a bed there and uh, design this walkway. Uh, it was a lot of work, but it was totally awesome uh, because I found like this kind of barrier stuff that you put down underneath the rock gravel so the water drains really well and the kind of like barrier there also has like a weed kind of thing underneath it. So you got these white rocks, the little vapor barrier thing, uh, the weed thing. I'm like, 
This is awesome. Because I get a killer walkway and no weeds. But that was a lie. I have so many weeds I've lost count. And I'm upset. Because I have to go out there all the time and pluck the weeds and spray the weeds. And I'm like, what's happening? Now, I know you're making fun of me right now because like, Eric, it's South Florida. It's all we do is weeds here. I get that. But it's one of those things where so often, no matter how much work I did, how many hours we put in, I find myself frustrated because I got to go back and I got to keep spraying and pulling those weeds and spraying and pulling. And I will do that until I sell that house. It's just going to happen. You got some miracle product, please tell me. But if you do, you'd be a millionaire already by now. False teaching is one of these realities that for the rest of your Christian life, you're going to have to be pulling the weeds of false teaching that lands in and around you all the time. It's not enough to just say, well, I, I read a book about it. Not enough to say, well, we've gone through the Galatians, I can identify it. Not enough to say, well, I've been a Christian for 10 years, I'm okay with it, I don't have to worry about it anymore. You're going to be having to deal with this the rest of your Christian life. Why? Because we need to continue to recognize that Satan comes as an angel of light, deceiving and distracting God's people. We are to learn God's truth by searching God's word. We must carefully evaluate every teaching according to God's word. God's word is the unfailing standard. Here is why false teaching is so successful today. Because so many Christians do not know their Bibles that well. Not by show of hands, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I wonder how many of you think the Bible actually says cleanliness is next to godliness. You'd be surprised how many people actually believe that. It's actually not nowhere in the Bible at all. And my point is not to sort of expose or embarrass biblical ignorance, by no means. My point is to say, the more unaware of the Bible you are, the more unaware of false teaching you will be and how it contradicts the Bible. You're like perfect prey. Because if I can persuade you with personality, I can manipulate you with emotion, and I can overwhelm you with popularity, you've got to think, this must be from God. How can it not be? Look how seemingly convincing it is. And I'm like, oh, man, it's going to rot your soul. Now, what's not the solution to fight back? It's not to become cynical of anyone and everyone, not to abandon the church. In fact, the church is a place to be protected, but also be discerning. The elders of God's church in every local church are to love the truth, to teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. One of the greatest challenges of churches today is they do not have elders who actually know their Bibles that well. They just kind of learn some, some phrases and some idioms and they keep repeating them endlessly. Let go and let God. You want to recognize godly leaders who can handle the word and refute false teachings False teachers may look like true elders. They may speak with authority, have education, charm people with their winsomeness, and make less truthful statements, less ethically truthful statements, and yet at the end, they do not love others. They love themselves and how they gather people to themselves. So where would you begin? I'll give you five places to begin. Number one, read your Bibles. Know them well. Get on a Bible reading plan. Get some friends who are going to read it with you. If the only time you're getting the Bible is when I'm reading it to you on a Sunday morning, you are like perfect prey for false teaching. Now, I'm glad for you to be here, and I want you to have Bibles and read it with me, but you're going to have to have an appetite. 
It's like saying a child, the only time they eat is when their parent provides a meal for them. What if the parent's working late nights? What if the parent's on a trip? Are you just going to sit there and starve? I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, but just listen to the buildup to this. Because this is a challenge I want to give to the men, particularly in the room here this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3 But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, Avoid such people. And look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And he gives the examples of Janus and Jambres opposing Moses and what happened to them. What I want to highlight here is the particular protection men, brothers in Christ, should have for sisters in Christ. Now, ironically and commendably, I find that women, generally speaking, will go to Bible studies, read their Bible, and meet with other women to do discipleship more than men, which is 1,000% commendable. The problem comes, though, is that the men themselves do not often lead by example, loving God's word and being doctrinally sound. If anything, they sort of delegate their Christianity to the elders of the church, sort of asking their girlfriends or their mothers or their wives to go talk to the elders if they have a Bible question. Gentlemen, I'm calling you to be men who not simply protect women from physical harm. Please do that. But to protect women from heretical harm, being easily played upon in their emotions. It should not be lost in you. Who did the serpent have the conversation with in Genesis 3? It was not the man that God had the conversation with. It was his wife, who he led astray, who then gave the fruit fruit to Adam, who he participated in as well. Too often... We have cowardly men who do not know their Bibles, who do not understand that something as basic as your own quiet time is only preparing you, but it's also going to help others in the future. Second, listen carefully to preaching. Listen carefully to preaching. Why do I say that? Listen for what you're not hearing and what not just what you are hearing. Be careful of a steady diet of internet preaching. Internet, man, it can be for good and it can be for harm. People in this room have referenced people like John MacArthur and Paul Washer and Vody Bauckham and other type of people that you really appreciate their sermons, and I commend that. But I also want to caution you. If your primary diet for God's word is through the internet, you're putting yourself at a great disadvantage to be wide open to the persuasiveness of the person's argument and whether or not you feel like you have anything to counter it with. 
versus in the context of the church and the context of community with local elders who are being held responsible for teaching sound doctrine or refuting false doctrine, that is the primary place for your discipleship. I find that people are enamored by effective communicators who they don't realize are actually bad preachers who do not handle the word of God well. Here's a simple litmus test. If you get done with a sermon and you're like, I didn't even need my Bible, not a good time. Third, ask your elders for good books. Ask your elders for good books. What you should be reading, or tell them what you're reading and ask if you should keep reading it. I can't tell you how many times I wish I could just like take books out of people's hands and say, hey, I'm going to take that from you and I'm going to burn it. I'm not going to donate it because I don't want anybody else to have it. I want to like, like, like let it go where it should go into the trash heap. You say, well, that's a bit aggressive. I don't want people to continue to have access to bad teaching. I want them to hear good, solid, faithful explanation of God's word and live in light of that good truth. Four, be mindful of the music you listen to. One of the things I'm so thankful for Chris Juday is his faithful pastoring to lead us biblically before he leads us instrumentally, harmoniously, culturally with musical expression. Do you realize one of the easiest ways to lead well or to lead wrongly people in churches is through the music they listen to? Sometimes people even think music is the highest form of worship. They even refer to it as the worship. But you understand, all of worship comes from the word of God. The preaching, the proclamation of the word is the epicenter by which it all flows. The songs are only so good is not that they first move your emotions, but that, that they inform your mind to be renewed by the shape of Christ's life, seeing the resurrected Savior. Five, and important, pray for God to help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, to protect you, to guide you into truth, to give you godly, discerning friends. This struck me as Tim Challies wrote the following Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Think of what Paul says in Galatians, the significance of what he's trying to tell these people. He is worried that they don't just get it wrong. He's worried that they get it wrong for an eternity. So let me say very clearly, anybody's present here, God's grace to you is in not telling what you want to hear, but telling what you need to hear, which is that you can be forgiven of your sin, reconciled to him, restored in relationship, adopted as a child of his, loving him, secure in him, removing your sins as far as the east is from the west, blotting out your sins that you might be as white as snow, only and fully by faith alone in Christ alone. That is how you can know you have peace with God. It's not in how much faith but in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And if it's there, then God will protect that and preserve that. 
False teaching is still common today. You need to know how to recognize it and be responsible for rejecting it. Otherwise, the consequence will be tragic for countless people. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.